You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and today we're talking about a new topic, venture real estate in Opportunity Zones. What is that exactly? We're going to find out. I'm joined on the show today by Kellyanne Winget and Rachel Voss of the Epic OZ Fund. Kelly and Rachel come to us from Dallas, Texas. Ladies, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Great. We're actually currently sitting inside of an Opportunity Zone. So <laughs> uh, we wanted to make sure that our scene fit the podcast. <laughs> yes. So excited to be here. Flew in all the way from New York just to be in Dallas to do this. No, I'm a- <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to ask you much more about the exact location you're in. We'll talk about Opportunity Zones plenty today. The two of you came together recently to form the EPIC OZ Fund, and EPIC is an acronym that stands for Energy Partnerships and for Infrastructure and Community. It's a diversified Opportunity Zone Fund that's going to combine what you refer to as traditionally disparate assets of real estate and venture capital into what we've we've titled the episode today around this term venture real estate uh we're going to spend a lot of time discussing your opportunity your opportunity zone strategy later on in the program today but first i wanted to see if i can get a little bit of background on each one of you because i want to hear about your journeys up until this point kelly i'll start with you a lot of my audience of high net worth investors and advisors may already be familiar with you and alternative wealth partners because you have participated at some of our Alts Expo events at Wealth Channel in the past. But for those who may be unfamiliar, can you tell me about Alternative Wealth Partners and your role there? Sure. So I'm the CEO and founder of Alternative Wealth Partners. It's a Dallas-based private equity company. We manage private equity funds that create diversified opportunities for investors to get involved in all things alts. Um, I've been primarily and exclusively in alternative investments uh, at the beginning of this career of mine, uh, almost 13 years ago. Um, In 2020, I launched my own firm to give a more boutique experience for investors because I had this crazy network I had built over the last 10 years um, of deal flow and being able to structure the those deals creatively to benefit the investors more than they were getting in traditional PE investments. Um, I lowered that barrier of entry from being having to have hundreds of millions of dollars of net worth in order to participate in private equity. Um, So now I work with, you know, just regular millionaires, I guess, to access uh, opportunities and alts. Um, I'm five generations in oil and gas. So I did start in the oil and gas. It does have a special place in my heart. She just recently rented a test and is now gasoline forever. No. And so (laughs) just for long drives, just for long drives. (laughs) Um, So there is going to be kind of this interwoven concept of the, you know, the transition needs to happen, but we have to do it in a space of reality. And that includes, you know, still participating in these traditional asset classes while we blend in these more venture forward, progressive investment strategies. Yeah, we can't just go green overnight. We can't just electrify everything overnight. It's going to be a transition over time. We still need oil and gas. I love the oil and gas industry. I love them as investments too. That's so cool that you're five generations in now. And you know, the story you tell about Alternative Wealth Partners and its role is kind of the same story we're telling at Opportunity DB and at Wealth Channel is, hey, these alternative investments were traditionally, historically only available to institutions and very, very ultra wealthy or family office 
um, type of, of individuals. And, and now the, the asset class has been democratized quite a bit. It's not appropriate for everybody, but once you hit that millionaire status, you know, ordinary main street millionaires, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's certainly available to a lot more people today than it, than it had been previously, even just 10 or 15 years ago. Rachel, I want to turn to you now. You're the founder and CEO of a separate organization, Syzygy Cities. Can you tell me a little bit about Syzygy Cities and, and your role there? Absolutely. First of all, hats off to you to pronouncing it correctly. I actually designed it. I had to it. practice that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of my game because I get to walk, you know, being a young woman in, in the finance world, I get to walk into a room with established men and teach them a new word, which obviously is an exciting new way to set the tone. Um, and usually they ask me how it's pronounced and I tell them it's syzygy and it's an actual astrophysics term that means um, the perfect synergy between not two, but three or more bodies typically referring to uh, a planetary system of the sun, the earth, and the moon. So the world experiences a syzygy at least twice a year. But in my business's case, it is referring to the perfect alignment uh, between business, government, and community, and the sort of possibilities, the unlimited possibilities unlocked from that. It's also the only word in the English language with the letter Y in it three times, which is my favorite question. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I am Rachel and I'm the CEO and founder of Syzygy Cities. Um, and what we have been doing historically is sort of this intersection between marketing and real estate, really trying to drive economies through um, foot traffic, similar to the attention economy, but in the real world. And we do this mostly in the impact real estate development world. So often in public-private partnerships, really working with historically disinvested or um, undergrown communities that really need a little bit of a catalytic economic engine. So I like to say most developers build pretty buildings and hope wealthy people move in, but we build wealthy people and hope they make our buildings worth a lot more. Um, and that's kind of the, 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 the underpinning and my background, just really quickly to explain this is, you know, starting out in financial services at Morgan Stanley, I learned a lot about how um, wealth creation and wealth preservation and family offices um, operated. And I sort of took that knowledge with me and wanted to bring it to similar to what you said at the beginning of this episode more of the the main the the, the, the basic millionaires the main street millionaires and really understand how to create wealth in places that they've been historically left behind in in these wealth creating opportunities and so after morgan stanley i you know i had been friends with john mack the ceo and um chairman of the board at the time because his office was next to mine and i was shameless in saying hello and we ended up uh i ended up going in one of his uh venture capital portfolios where the entire underpinning was using media to activate underutilized space, which they called remnant perishable inventory. Basically, if you don't use the space in a period of time, you lose the value of that period of time. So I got really intrigued by this and it was all through the portal of experiential marketing. Like how do we take a New York public library and make it a Robin Hood Foundation event space at night and add $40,000 to its revenue stream, you know, a month? How do we, uh, you know, take the nightclub during the day and make it a high-end cocktail event for, you know, 10,000 people? So really it was all about real estate during a time when in New York even, real estate was dying and even the Soho retail was dying. And yet I ended up, you know, my next job working in an experiential marketing company where the Googles of the world and the Amazons of the world were like, how do we get retail in Soho while all of it was not being used? And this <laughs> market just wasn't meeting. 
And I got really intrigued by this experiential component of real estate, recognizing it was an entire market that wasn't being tapped. And ultimately, it wasn't until I was in the room with a large tech company that I will not name uh, this time. Um, and they basically were sitting in the room, stroking their chin hairs, going, what economy should we save this year with our $300 million event? And I watched as Detroit's mayor sort of, you know, put together this amazing presentation in 2015 about how they'll add 15 new subway stops and turn this pile of rubble into an art gallery and all these amazing things. I'm like, man, this would really change the face of Detroit. And it was so sad to me when they decided, you know, oh, this sounds cool, but like, you know, let's go back to Menlo Park. And so we ended up, you know, I, I ended up my, uh, someone who worked with me at the company at the time, oh my goodness, it's hysterical. Um, my company at the time, um, uh, I took by the, one of the most cre talented creative strategists from there. And I, my next job was at TED Talks where I essentially got, you know, all of the relationships with the corporate social responsibility and impact market folks. And after being a global partnerships manager at TED, me and my uh, co-founder co who was from this experiential marketing company were like, you know what? Let's take this big black book of business we have in the world of experiential marketing to real estate, to communities that have been historically left behind. Let's bring that $300 million event to that Detroit. And let's take this giant black book of, you know, corporate social responsibility marketing uh, organizations we have from TED, and let's get them to subsidize some of the costs of the businesses um, that are coming into these buildings so that we can make local businesses, minority and women-owned businesses, and other sort of historically left behind businesses capitalize and partnered with like a growth, you know, team that would like the credit for that positive impact they're having in the world. So that's how Syzygy began. <laughs> that's fantastic. And well, now my goal for this podcast is to have uh, a Syzygy form between the three of us, uh, right? Yes. So yes, thank you for using <laughs> the word in a sentence. <laughs> there we go. So how, how did the two of you meet? Did, Rachel, did you just hop in your Tesla a couple of days ago and drive out to Texas to, to meet up with Kelly or, or how did the two of you <laughs> If I had to drive from New York to Texas in a Tesla, I wouldn't be alive today. I'd be somewhere in a ditch. That was impossible to charge all the way. But uh, no, our origin story is awesome. Um, I Kelly really flipped my world upside down. I met her in Sally Krawcheck's apartment. We were both investors in uh, Sally's Series B. And we're in the room and uh, I don't know what your audience makeup is. So this could or could not be a popular or unpopular thing to say, but Basically, I heard this woman in the corner saying, blah, 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 guns and ammo, blah, 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 oil and gas, blah, 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 Texas. And I was like, okay, I'm walking in the next direction. <laughs> and as I'm walking away, you know, I'm a New York City progressive and I was like walking the other way. And then I was listening a little further and she was talking about how she takes the dividends from oil and invests them in, into long-term renewable because we'll never get to the renewable transition if we do not include and actually do it on the coattails of the oil and gas sector. And I was like, she's right. This is brilliant. And then, you know, I, I pressed on the, the ammo and she goes, well, somebody has to sell bullets to Ukraine. And I was like, cool, I'm on board. And, and then, you know, we ended up talking, we had dinner and, you know, I was sort of had this image of her as this person with completely different values of me just because she had different politics for me. And the, the reality was, is that she had the same values as me. And that actually, you know, this, this, you know, gun toting lesbian from Texas and this New York City progressive, you know, were actually do, trying to do the same thing. We just had different sides of the aisle listening to us. And we're like, you know what, the world needs this right now. We need to bring these aisles together in a way that we all have the same goal. We all want to see success. So why are we sitting here wasting our time doing anything else but 
taking these two horses that are pulling the cart in two different directions and bringing them together so we can go twice as far, twice as fast. Yeah, I think the returns live in this blended reality. And I think that there isn't a sentiment on, you know, the more conservative side of anything that doesn't want to continue making money um, and investing in things that, you know, are traditional, makes sense, conservative, whatever. But as we move forward into the future, there's going to have to be technology. There's going to have to be transition. There's going to have to be, you know, diverse leadership teams involved. And it's just because the population is changing. And I think that when you pull back all of the different layers to things that everyone is really on the same page. And so we get to kind of tout that message of like, we don't really care about the diverse, you know, like the, the pulling part, the distance, the, the division it's, you know, we, we have a goal, we have a, a, a vision, and if we can stay on path, then everybody's going to make a lot of money and a lot of people will um, advance forward. You know, that's the best thing about accessibility in general is that it doesn't hurt anybody to make things better <laughs> and more accessible. It like helps everyone. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, I love it. I love the origin story. Rachel, you tell it well. Uh, I want to hear more about where you two are physically located right now at this moment, this is the sign behind you above you says it was all a dream. Is it a dream or, or is this real? Tell, tell us a little bit more about where you're located right now. So um, when Rachel and I met, she like, we had this very long conversation about things. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm already doing this on a small scale because I, I see the complete opportunity. So if you know anything about me and if you like watch our past, past podcast or anything else that I've been on, I, I'm the last person to say, let's invest in real estate. I think that real estate is like super boring when you can have like VC and private equity returns, like a two X return is like, nah, but if you invest in not only the physical real estate, but also the passion and people behind what's going to exist in that property, then that's where you get your exponential return. And so a year, actually almost exactly a year ago, I bought a property out in Greenville, Texas. It's in East Dallas. It was a salon suite building um, with like a little bit of elbow grease and some money. We painted it up and we changed the concept to include things like this. Um, the entire building is kind of like this, all in different types. Um, we took the concept of like a selfie museum and applied it into the salon suite. Because what do you want to do after you get your hair done or your eyebrows done, or your makeup done, or get a massage, whatever, you feel good, you look good, and you want to take a picture of yourself. So why not have really creative backgrounds all around the space? Which is built-in marketing. And, and it want, it makes people want to come in here. There's a bright, bright pink, hot pink Cadillac out front like parked on a cement block. You cannot drive past this as a highway. Everything is um, dirt and gray, but this beautiful, clean, pristine building. <laughs> yes. And so people come in here just to see what's in here. And then they realize, oh, there's like a hair salon and a, like a massage, like there's people that do massage. There's people that do um, eyelashes and eyebrows and all sorts of stuff. And um, then they're like, oh, I'm going to come back here for this service. And so we were able to owner finance this building at four and a half percent with 10% down. We pay the mortgage to the lady that owned the property before. We turned it from doing about $5,500 a month to almost $10,000 a month in, in rent, um, like in a matter of three months. So our we've almost had a 100% return of capital that we've had invested um, in the first year. And it's only going up from here as we finish out the um, 
the inside fixtures and stuff and continue to lease out the space. And that has everything to do, by the way, to credit Kelly on this with the experience that was built, not the fact that she built a building, which is where I think most real estate developers get led astray. You know, if a, if, if a city asks you, it puts out an RFP and says, build an economy, most people show up with a picture of a building. But the reality is, is that's like saying, make me a human and someone's saying, here's a skeleton. <laughs> like, there's no blood, there's no soul, there's no heartbeat. And I think that's what this has that other buildings don't. And I think that's sort of the, the missing factor or the, the missing piece for most people is they build a building and then decide who should be inside it. Whereas Kelly and I are approaching this more from a, a business forward approach where we're like, what businesses need to exist in this area and what structure can we create and infrastructure can we create, create to enable that economy and benefit? from it. And we incubate inside of here. So there's individual salon seats. Like we're inside of one of the independent rooms. But one of the things that we did when we when we uh, renovated the space was actually knock down three of the suite walls, combine them and put in booth rent for people to come out of the cosmetology school here, learn how to create a book of business for themselves, teach them the skills they need. And then so that they can move into one of the independent suites in their own business and be able to afford the rent that we've increased uh, 150%. So um, it's an, it's just creating the pipeline while also incubating and supporting the community because out here, there's not there's a lot of development going in. This is an opportunity zone. Um, there soon is going to be a $2 billion mixed-use development going in right around the building. And so if we can create this space for them, we're just going to be able to keep increasing rent and the people inside of it will be able to support that moving forward. They'll be able to pay that increasing rent because their business will keep growing as you continue to offer them mentorship and coaching and, right. and investment. how to build a book right. of business and there'll be more community around them to support it, right? They won't yeah. be priced out and moved out. Yeah, that's the idea of the, right. the incubation goes be, I sometimes will invest in the companies as well because they'll get the capital to grow with the building's growth. So it this all a, it was all a dream sign is actually, it was making me think in a way where the, we're real estate developers of people's fields of dreams. I love it. If you build it, they will come, but then you yeah. have to offer some mentorship and coaching as well, right? Yeah. So and money, but yes. Yeah. And that's no, the equity are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Um, and yeah, by the way, it happens to be in an opportunity zone where you're sitting right now, although it, this isn't part of the OZ funder, is it? It will, be. it will be. It will be. Okay, good. And then uh, the because I own it now in okay. outside of an opportunity zone fund and I, there needs to be some additional work and it would absolutely crush it in an opportunity zone. I just can't hold it for that long to take advantage of the upside. Got it. And then the individual businesses within the building that you're incubating and that you sometimes will make investments in, are you going to plan to set those up as qualified opportunity zone businesses that can the fund can yeah. invest directly? And I love it. That's brilliant. That's most opportunity zone funds perform at an average of 7%. And that's really a function of the fact that they build a hotel in a neighborhood that's not ready for that hotel. And it just sits empty and unoccupied for years. Whereas I think for us, the part that this real estate venture component everyone's already tapping the markets of San Francisco. Like mm -hmm. that market is tapped, but there's, you know, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? <laughs> Benjamin Franklin said that, I believe. Um, and I think that I, you know, when you have a lot of issues in a community, there's a lot of necessity and there's a ton of ingenuity that comes with that. So those are really the untapped markets and the potential for multiples because there's a lot of unsolved problems in areas like these that if somebody is able to solve, it's worthy in some ways more worthy of an investment. 
And in, in that vein, we are sort of taking the component, the asset-backed sort of safer component of real estate and combining it with the high multiple potential of venture in these completely untapped markets. And the idea is that that will, the, you know, most opportunity zone funds don't even realize or acknowledge that that capital gains offset that you get. So with opportunity zones, if you take your, let's say you made $10 million off of a $1 million investment, that $10 million, 4 million of that is going to the tax man. So instead of giving that $4 million to the tax man, you can invest the full 10 million in opportunity zone fund without having to pay the capital to gains tax. You can defer those initial capital gain taxes for the next four years. And Kelly's got a myriad of opportunities for you to write them down completely <laughs> through gas and oil. But you know, after that, that 10 million that was supposed to be 6 million is now making 22 plus percent. And you don't get taxed on that at all. And so the idea of sort of doing that with real estate has been something that people are intrigued in. But what most people don't realize is that you can also invest in the businesses that are operating out of an opportunity zone. And if 50% or more of their revenue is coming from an opportunity zone address, they are also capital gains tax free, which is an unbelievable thing for venture. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely love it. I, by the way, I love the pink Cadillac too. I think we should do the next episode with the two of you sitting in the pink Cadillac. That wouldn't really stand out in a place like San Francisco or New York City, but in in, in East Dallas, where, where you're located, I think it probably sticks out like a sword. But it doesn't awesome. rule. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Well, hey, we, we're, we're starting to talk about opportunity zones. Go ahead. The, the building was originally a restaurant called the Caddyshack. And it had the pink Cadillac out front originally. And it was, ah, okay. a, it was kind of a famous, not a famous, it was just a very popular restaurant in Greenville many, many years ago. And so we've been able to find a lot of these old, we, like the old doors are up front. We found a lot of these old things from the restaurant, like in the back of the storage when we took over the building. And so we've just like implemented it back in the redesign. And so people in the community are like connecting like, oh, the pink Cadillac's back. <laughs> and uh, so it's, and it's cool. And it's literally on a highway. There's probably... I don't know. That takes adaptive reuse to yeah. a whole new level. <laughs> That's a, there's a two-lane highway like outside the door. And I mean, it's just constant flow of cars back and forth, back and forth. You cannot miss this building. I love it. I'll have to check it out sometimes. And not not too far from where I am, probably about uh, 60 or 90 minutes or so. Well, let's let's talk more about Opportunity Zones. We're starting to talk Opportunity Zones. Um, Kelly, a few months back, I got an awesome awesome email from you. I love email marketing. It's in my blood. We have large email lists here at my business that we send to all the time. And and uh, emails with great subject lines always stick out to me. And your email, Kelly, just blew me away with the <laughs> simplicity and the intrigue of its subject line. Do you remember what the what the subject line was? You might not remember. I, I think it was like something about like I gave in or like- so That I was it. Up. Yeah. It was, it was just simply, I gave, I gave in. <laughs> dot 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 and i'm like this sounds interesting this sounds super interesting so i opened it and the opening line of the email simply read we are doing an opportunity zone and i, I remember pumping my fist because i was rooting for you to get into the opportunity zone space because we love what you were doing with awp and your oil and gas funds and everything else you were doing for the high net worth retail investor with regards to getting in them into opportunity zones and 
I was trying to encourage you. And I think Andy was also trying to encourage you. Hey, you should do an OZ fund. And I love that you are finally doing it now. That was a great way to get my attention, by the way, with that, with that email. That's like that line. email so I can frame it. The day I wore <laughs> Kelly down. Yeah. You should, you should. Yeah. <laughs> you should definitely print it out and frame it. It could be one of the uh the backdrops on the building there. Maybe yeah. people can get their picture taken in front of it. But anyways, <laughs> let's let's discuss more now your new OZ fund. As I mentioned in the intro to the episode, it's the epic. OZ Fund One. Tell us a little bit more about it. What is it and what makes it different? Sure. So um, the one thing about me is like, I loved everything tax advantage. Um, and I know that there's a bunch of tax advantages in real estate as an individual investor in real estate. However, there is a lot of that recapture. You're, I mean, it's really about kicking the can down the road. And as somebody who's been doing my own taxes since I was 16, uh, the name of the game is not deferral, but elimination. And so any type of investment strategy you can implement that helps get rid of that tax is a way better investment than deferral. Um, because yes, while we might all die at the end of the day, like, wouldn't it be nice to have that 20 to 30% back in your pocket to reinvest? Um, so that's why I've always like kind of kept my eye on opportunity zones. Um, I just like really was biting my tongue over investing in real estate. But when I met Rachel and the stuff that she's been working on for the last four or five years, I was like, okay, if we can implement capital now, we just removed five years of work, <laughs> which then can accelerate our potential of return. Um, and so we'll be able to front load our fund with these projects that are ready to go and start the work on these infrastructure deals where we both have a pipeline of deals that can fill out the rest of the fund. So we're raising $150 million. Uh, we'll start taking cap, we can start taking capital now. Um, we are going to probably try to break ground on some of those projects before the end of the year. And that's somewhere between 20 and $30 million. Chicago winter permitting. Yeah. <laughs> If not, we'll start in Texas because um, <laughs> we only have two weeks of frozen weather. Yeah. Um, uh, but we we have a, a pipeline of projects and the first ones are really, really cool. They are up in Chicago. Um, just so you know, we're not doing anything in New York at the moment. It is definitely going to be, you know, middle America here. Good. Yeah. And yeah. New York seems a little bit hostile to the Opportunity Zone incentive, the, the state of New York anyway. Um you know, they they they're trying to unwind it a little bit there, at least for the at the state tax liability level. But but that's that's a separate issue for for a separate conversation some other time. I would tell me more about your portfolio allocation. What does it look like within the Epic OZ fund? You've got a pipeline built out already. Middle America, it sounds like, is your geographic focus coming down from Chicago through into Texas, I guess, and maybe some adjacent areas. Right. Also, a bit more about that, and also, um, what 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 does the asset um breakdown look like? Asset class breakdown look like? It's going to be mixed use and commercial and infrastructure so energy deals. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, we're probably, so housing is not going to be as big of a component just because, you know, go where everybody isn't. I'm a big mm -hmm. contrarian investor. Residential is overly saturated right now. The reason I actually got into the, you know, commercial mixed use game in the Southern portion of Chicago is because there's about 3000 housing units going up in an area that there's no commercial or retail and there's 220 million in leak re retail leakage as that as it stands today with 3000 new households that number is going to jump significantly that means that the people who live there are currently spending 220 million dollars outside of their local economy because that infrastructure doesn't exist so i'm going to build it for them so that they pay you know into their own community's dollar circulation and similarly i think that um there is a sort of 
component of housing being sort of something people are more comfortable with. So one of the things Kelly and I are really interested in doing in this portfolio is not just investing in specific, you know, businesses to incubate, but also helping incubate emerging developers, specifically women and, and, and minority developers who are already sort of in the residential game. So the idea is we'll partner with them if they have residential but no commercial strategy and we'll handle the commercialization aspect. So we have a whole uh, group of women in Detroit we're currently talking to and working with about their shovel ready projects and getting them capital and helping sort of incubate their um, developments in a way that has that commercial component and mixed use and infrastructure component attached. And we have projects, let's talk about the projects that are already in. Yeah, so there are projects in Chicago. Right now we are working on uh, a project in, two projects in South Chicago. One is going to be a really cool mixed use facility um, in a community called Bronzeville. It's one of the most uh, amazing historic black neighborhoods that very few people know about. The history, I would say rivals and even maybe beats the Harlem Renaissance. There's Muddy Waters, Otis Redding, Ida Wells. Um, some amazing names came from there. They're, they invented the Powerball uh, in this neighborhood and it, the game is called Policy. And it's actually a, a sort of uh, history from the 1920s where the black mafia would go from door to door collecting five cents from each community member and for the chance to win $200 if they picked the winning numbers. But if that number wasn't picked and they lose the money, actually, instead of lining the pockets of the mafia, it was built, it used to build the first African-American owned real estate investment bank and tax accounting firm in Chicago, which is why there's one of the highest incidences of home ownership in this community, um, this historic black community in the country. And so that community has these, you know, million dollar homes now, but no sort of entertainment and food. So we used marketing data. We cast a geofence around the area to see what is it that these folks want to spend money on. And it turns out they index 50% higher than the rest of the nation in wanting theater and restaurant life. And they had none of it. And they had a rich history in theater. So that investment bank that I mentioned built the Regal Theater, which was actually, if you wanted to get elected mayor of Chicago in the 1930s, you had to show your face in this theater. That's where Muddy Waters, Notice Redding, and all those folks became famous. And so there was a rich history in theater here. So we ended up deciding to build two entertainment centers. One is a fil virtual film production studio and theater. Um, and that is one of the buildings. And then three blocks away, we're building a, um, a mixed use uh, uh, retail building where the first floor is a BIPOC female owned food hall, um, where there's lots of, you know, up and coming restaurants and food, um, entrepreneurs and a grocery store and a coffee, uh, shop. Um, and then on the second floor, there's going to be a 15,000 square foot metaverse Re, uh, restaurant and exhibit space. So there's actually a company, House of Attention, that is going to fully projection map this digitally, you know, um, in, encapsulated room where you could put any backdrop or experience, immersive 3D experience in. So if you're one of those, imagine you're one of those restaurants on the first floor, you can, you know, in your sushi restaurant, you can bring your sushi, you know, stand upstairs for a week, rent out that bigger commercial kitchen virtual space and host these fine dining experiences for potential investors and potential customers where they're literally sitting under the ocean and looking at the fish they're eating, understanding all of the sort of environmental effects and where those fish live and what their, you know, um, ecosystem looks like. And then next to that, we have a G-code house, which is a uh, coding Academy for young women, um, and particularly some BIPOC women, where they essentially learn Web 2 and Web 3 development 
And we have a deal with the House of Attention where they'll hire these coders and designers into their ecosystem. And then lastly, we have an Afrobeats restaurant and a soul food vegan restaurant on the uh, top floor. And then little shops like candle shops, bridal suites, and um, a five iron golf. So, it, and maybe a bowling alley. So it's going to be really heavy on entertainment and food to serve the 3000 ulums going up in the area and honor the history of that community and what they've supported in the past. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I love that you're not just putting in empty buildings. You actually know what's going inside. You're not just building totally the skeletons. Please. That's why right? we know our returns. Yeah. I already know what I'm going to earn for the next 10 years. They've all signed releases. Yeah, that's amazing. That's incredible. So you're getting cash flow pretty quickly then after um, yeah. after they, 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 they're able to occupy the buildings. Uh, what's this, what's the status of, uh, the development right now at this moment in, uh, we're sitting here in early June of, of 2023. Yeah. So, I mean, we're pushing to have this get, uh, get it started pretty immediately. I mean, hopefully by the middle or end of the summer, we'll have a groundbreaking because we've been sort of designed, we've designed the building. We've, we've gotten the tenants, we've been working with the city. We've gotten sort of letters of intent from the city of 11 million in grants. We are currently and I'll top shopping for the right lenders um, to the new lenders out there and um, and raising equity. Um, and so uh, I would say as soon as the money is raised, we're ready to break ground. We've got the building plans and designs and the tenants ready to go, hopefully this fall. And uh, the city has already given us the letter of intent saying as soon as you've secured, you've got your term sheets, we'll give you the land. One of the biggest criticisms of the Opportunity Zone's tax incentive from its detractors, from its critics, is that it's subsidizing gentrification in these areas all over the country where you're coming into this uh, relatively poor or, or downtrodden economically community and you're building new buildings and you're, and you're pushing out the existing residents. What is your take on that? And, and how are you trying to combat that exactly? So um, it's my favorite question. I think, um, so we have a word we use called intrification and it's what we feel we're doing instead of gentrification. Now, it sounds really nice and woo woo, but of course, you know, people who like making money immediately take a step back and they're like, whoa, is this a nonprofit? <laughs> I do because I also like making money. Um, but what I've learned in the same way that, you know, let's say you invest in a blue chip stock, like you're, you're going to make a little bit of money and your money is going to be safe. But the real opportunity lay in the things that people don't see a lot of value in today that have the highest growth potential. And I view these communities very similarly. They're opportunities, like the title would suggest. And so, intrification. There's actually, so this is part of the research that my firm has been working on for the past five years that came from experiential marketing. So I mentioned that guy uh, in the room, uh, the big tech company and the $300 million event that changes an economy. Now, let me take you to today where his sort of more um, high level words have taken on actual true numerical meaning to me. So we started studying these markets. We studied Austin and uh, the impacts of South by Southwest. We studied Palm Spring and the impacts of Coachella. We studied Sundance and the, uh, sorry, Park City and the impacts of Sundance. And they all have relatively similar numbers. So the, the, the actual translation is if you get about 120,000 extra feet to the street in a year or more, that is the tipping point that will add about 300 million plus to the local economy each year and about 30 to 60 million to the local tax base per year. Now, the reason that's important and it's consistent across the board is number one, 
for cities who are needing to improve their tax base, this makes the sell really easy because you're basically saying, I have an experiential methodology or a commercial methodology that's going to bring 120,000 plus feet to the street. So the house of attention, there are 10,000 people a month in foot traffic is the estimate. So it's about that tipping point. And here's the trick. They're not coming in, you know, traditionally you think build a tech campus, create 30,000 jobs. Well, those 30,000 jobs, the people who are in that community weren't prepared to take those jobs. So they go to someone else and that someone else is incentivized by a big paycheck to come move to this new area. And now they can spend $4,000 a month on rent where the other person was spending two. And suddenly you have gentrification. And that's really what happened in San Francisco. And that's why that real estate market is very volatile and it actually didn't grow as steadily or as properly as, as investors would have liked. But Austin, so Park City and Palm Springs had a very steady 200% growth rate in under 10 years. So because of the numbers I just explained to you prior and that sort of economic catalyst. So the idea is if people come, spend money and leave, it actually allows the local businesses a chance to grow with the growth of the community in a way where they now get capitalized and they have the rest of the year to sort of expand their operations and grow and grow with the sort of economy locally. But as an investor, gentrification is maybe 7% over 15 years, maybe 10% over 15 years. Intrification is, you are, you're talking about 200% growth rate in under 10 years. So it's faster, more profitable and better for everybody. And the government is willing to pay for it. So you get a lot of free capital because you're pushing, you're not pushing the problem out. You're actually resolving the systemic issue. Yeah. Let's, let's talk more about that. That kind of leads me to my next question. The, the government paying for you to do that. I was going to ask you, why is now a great time to invest in public private partnerships and and what kind of subsidies and grants are you able to go after in addition to opportunity zone equity incentives within the deals that you're putting together within your broader Epic OZ fund? I think that there's definitely been a shift in the, like, the last like three years of the you know, the dirty word of ESG and, uh, and DEI and everything. And, but there's all of this sitting money that's been mandated to be spent with uh, women and, and minority emerging trillion dollars, like over a there's trillion a ton of money sitting. And, um, I think that this is kind of our opportunity, not that we weren't always around, we were, um, but this is now our opportunity to capitalize on the incentive programs that are out there, uh, while they exist in order to, um, amplify the change and exponentially grow our return. And there was a $1.9 trillion infrastructure bill passed. Where do you think that money is going to go? You know, and you know, who are, who's going to be responsible for building those projects? Well, we want to be, and we have the deal flow and we have the access to the team members that qualify for those incentive programs. Um, and so we're applying for them where they're being awarded them. And we've created the space in these, um, what do you call them? blue dots and red states or something. Yes. And uh, so in Texas, especially in Texas, like it's a, it's a completely different game than Chicago, but there's opportunities. There's a ton of opportunity zones all over the place, but in Texas specifically, you have a lot less red tape and the same incentive programs, if not more, because there's masses amounts of money here. Um, Texas has been in a surplus for years. And so if we can tap into that market 
and build what's needed here to support infrastructure of these community revitalization projects. Because not only do we wanna bring money into um, these communities, we also wanna make it less expensive for them to exist there anyways. So by building um, green buildings or, or tapping into different types of renewable energy for those spaces as it expands, it actually keeps those costs down and keep them in our buildings long-term. And allows us to raise rent. You know, like we are looking at investing in battery companies, which, by the way, are great businesses to bring to places that don't have any businesses. They, you know, or energy from waste, which can bring 500, six figure paying jobs without needing a college degree. I mean, these communities are asking for high paying jobs and that that is what we need to bring them. But also that those those sort of infrastructure situations allow us to create self-sustaining buildings. It's not even about being green. It's about being inexpensive. If you can have solar panels on the roof and capture that energy in a battery pack in the basement and never have to pay another energy bill again, well, then I can raise rent 30% because that's 30% of your costs going away. Um, so it's pretty, it, it's ways of being more efficient. And similarly in the tax credit area, like most people just are lazy and don't know <laughs> these things exist. Like in New York, you, I was laughing at both of you inside when you were talking <laughs> about the New York market being inhospitable to opportunity zones. I'm like, most people don't know that if you build a, a certain percentage of affordable housing in any of your housing units, New York will literally give you 20% of your financing and cash up front in the beginning of the project just give it to you. And similarly, like if you create 500 new jobs, you get 20 in Chicago, you get $26,000 per new full-time employment you created per, like per person. And that's money, just money you get for creating these opportunities. So just knowing where to look and how to look and who to talk to and how to, you know, broker the deals of this ecosystem. So House of Attention knows if they hire 86% from this training pool of local community members, they're actually going to get, you know, they're not going to have to pay taxes on most of their income. And that's actually a cost savings for them. So really about educating and partnering this ecosystem and creating that alignment between all the tenants. So they're not separate tenants. They're part of a syzygy together. That's how you maximize the results. Yeah. And if you can, if you can be aggressive on the tax side and the incentive side, you're increasing your return by 50% or more. Um, and I think that that kind of is what sets us apart from the other OZ funds that are available is because we're, we've done the background work and have the capacity to understand like the multifaceted nature of combining tax advantage with government incentive and with risk um, across a traditional asset class into a more venture asset class combining them all into one picture because we have the team in place and we have for separately for very long yeah. time and now together. And we're researchers by nature. So we're constantly educating ourselves. So if you do that deep dive or that, I like to use the term scrounge. If you really scrounge and you are able to pair opportunity zone equity tax incentives with all of these different types of government grants and subsidies, both from, it sounds like they're both coming from the federal level and the state and local level as well. What, what, how does that impact your capital stack? What percentage of your capital stack is basically just free money at that point? Almost 40%. Almost 40%. In both, in all three of my projects, I didn't name the third because we were oversubscribed and could not capitalize that one sadly, but um, it, it is almost 40% free money. That's incredible. That is really incredible. Um, 
And that really will help juice returns quite yeah. a bit if you can get 40% of your capital stack just through free money from the government. Um, well, we're, we're, we're kind of running a little bit low on time. We're, we're, we're getting long here with the episode. So I wanted to uh, wrap up in a few minutes here, but I wanted to pose a big, broad question to each one of you individually on kind of your different areas of expertise. Uh, Kelly, I'll start with you. You have a lot of expertise in alternative investments and in particular in oil and gas, as you mentioned previously. I'm, I'm curious, what do you see as being some of the most powerful trends that you see playing out over the next few years across the broader energy industry? Any bold predictions? So, um, I mean, I've kind of always been a fan of natural gas. I think it's the cheapest, most efficient way to trans transition from, you know, fossil fuel power source to renewable, because uh, it technically is a renewable, but more efficient um, energy sources. So investing in oil and gas, siphoning returns to fund battery and other types of renewable uh, sources. But really, she's kind of turned me on to the battery space. Um, I kind of oh, always batteries. understood it was like kind of the end all be all because even in oil and gas, you, we call our storage tanks batteries. Mm -hmm. um, and it is where you store the oil and gas that you pull out of the ground. And the reality is that the cheapest place to store your oil and gas is in the rock in the ground. Mm -hmm. Like it's just never taking it out and just knowing that it's there. And so if we can create um, an infrastructure where we're taking cheap energy, which comes from natural gas. I mean, it's like $2 or something today. Um, if you can store that electricity in batteries long-term without it ruining or heating up a space or you know, making it a toxic environment in general, then you can power an entire economies for decades uh, for relatively nothing. And I think just, that's the direction we're going to. Yeah, just throw it into Rachel's uh, car battery, right? <laughs> It, I didn't say Tesla had it figured out. No. I just sold half my Tesla stock. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Well, Rachel, let me pose you as a similar big, broad question uh, based on your expertise. What do you feel is the future of community development in this country? Yeah. Um, awesome question. So I think that one of the things that I've noticed, especially in green energy, but other industries as well, is that the problem with the market's growth is not the amount of investment dollars that are going in. And it's not the technology that being developed. It's actually the workforce that we need to implement it, like whether it's solar battery or whatever. The reason I love batteries is I like um, necessity-based investments and you know, what does every form of energy need? I don't know if it's going to be solar or wind or nuclear that wins out, but I do know all of them require batteries for storage. So it is the lowest common denominator sort of at the fulcrum of all of these investments, um, balancing them. And I think being able to create a workforce ready, prepared to implement that um, and sort of uh, be the ones to take that 3x growth and and need it with the you know with the 3x growth in workforce that's the future of community development we need jobs that people can do and there are a lot of them we just haven't sort of the balances haven't been the equation hasn't been balanced between jobs we need filled and people we have prepared to fill them and that's really i think the beautiful sort of aspect of development is while yes we're building a building i think what sets kelly and i apart from other people is we're actually just building an economy and happen to have to house it in a building. And that's what I think is sort of different here. So this entire new age economy, we get to come to communities, create high paying jobs and new skill sets that will help the sort of world and community grow that we also happen to have a market need around. And that's where I'm most excited. I love it. I love the vision. Uh, it was great talking with both of you today. Thanks so much for 
sharing your insights, both of you. Um, we have run out of time, but before <laughs> we go, where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors, if they're interested in learning more about you and the Epic OZ Fund, where can they go to learn more about that? So they can reach out to us either directly through each of our firms. And then I think we'll have probably the epicdevfund.com up and running in the next probably 72 hours. Mm -hmm. well, they... By the time this episode airs, it'll, yeah. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be ready then it sounds like. So what, yeah. what's, what's that URL again? It's epicdevfund.com. Epicdevfund.com. We'll be sure to link to that in our show notes for today's episode. And of course, our listeners and viewers, as always, can access those show notes at our website, just head to opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And then we'll have links to all of the resources that Kelly, Rachel, and I discussed on today's episode. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Kelly and Rachel, I think we did it. I think this was a syzygy. Thanks for participating today. It was, it was great uh, getting you to spend some time with me and my audience today. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Jimmy. Love a good syzygy, Jimmy. <laughs>